Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, right after 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians this morning. And I want to also thank you all for praying for my back. It's a little bit better. It's not 100%, but it's better, so thank you. Uh, the Lord is good, and he, so thank you so much for that. Second Thessalonians, we're continuing our, our sermon series entitled Stand Firm, and uh, we're off to a great start. By way of reminder, uh, Paul is writing to a flourishing church there in Thessalonica that is suffering greatly. So that they have a lot of questions about suffering and as it relates to the eschatological time clock, specifically relating to the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus. And so they've got all these questions going around and, and Paul is answering them. We, we spent uh, about five, six weeks in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, which if you missed that series, you can go back to our website and check it out and you can get a good background of what's going on there. This is a second letter that Paul is writing, some maybe two months to about a year, somewhere in that time frame. He's writing to them again and really kind of addressing the same issues. It's really ultimately uh, dealing with, hey, what in the world is going on relating to, to, to suffering and persecution, all the affliction that we're experiencing, and how does that work in terms of are we in the tribulation period? Uh, you know, they have a lot of questions about end times and also relating to people who have passed away and what happens to them, you know, prior to Christ's coming. So they're, they're, they're very grounded in the gospel, so they understand what Christ has done for them and the, and the sin that has been atoned for. They understand the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for them, that they are victorious in Christ, but they have a lot of questions. Anybody else have a lot of questions about end times? Anybody wondering what's going on in the world today? They're just, a, just like two of you. The rest of you are saying, oh, I'm cool with the coronavirus. I'm okay with all the earthquakes and all this other stuff that's going on. Well, listen, these are, these are things that Jesus said were going to happen in Matthew chapter 24. You can read that later today. But, but Jesus said in the very first part of that, uh, that, that portion of, of passage of re relating to end times, he, he said, listen, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pestilences. There's going to be diseases that are happening. There, there's going to be earthquakes. And, and he said, these are just birth pains. The end has not yet come. And so what the Lord is doing, what we need to understand, what he is doing in the world today is he is trying to wake people up to the reality that Jesus is coming soon. That Jesus Christ is coming soon, and we need to be ready for that. And that is something that Paul wants this church to have a better understanding of. And, you know, if we're honest, maybe we need to have a better understanding of it as well, because it will help us in our walk with the Lord. It will help us as it relates to evangelism. It will help us in, you know, dealing with different portions of uh, our walk with the Lord, you know, in terms of suffering and, 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 and looking at the world and wondering why, and why is God allowing these things to happen, it will put things into perspective. And so if you don't understand, um, you know, end times theology, you don't have an understanding of the second coming of Christ or anything, listen, we're going to spend a little bit of time in 2 Thessalonians speaking about this specifically. We'll start today. Paul's going to start to begin to talk about the second coming of Christ and what, uh, it, you know, what people can expect. And listen, this is one of those messages that you're just like, man, it's so heavy. It's, it's so important to understand that, you know, I, just, just pray with me that God will speak through me in, to, to you guys and wherever else this message might go because this is such an important under, uh, passage to understand and, and it relates to where you will spend eternity, where you will spend eternity. And so Paul is... Paul is writing to this church. He wants them to understand this. If you missed last week, you can pick it up on our website. But Paul talked about what, what a church looks like that would be proud, that, that we ought to be proud of, really. And he gives us some examples of why we should be proud of this church in Thessalonica um, and how, you know, as they are suffering through persecutions and afflictions and all, ultimately they are standing firm in their faith. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a church to be proud of there in Thessalonica. 
And let's read our text this morning. If you would stand, we are going to read 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be uh, marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. To this, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we, just in reading the passage, there is a heaviness here, Lord, that you so desire to relieve us of. You so desire for us to understand the gospel, the good news that this eternal damnation, this destruction, this place of hell was not created for us, but it was created for the devil and his angels. And yet, Lord, there are many in our world today who will choose to walk the path that leads to destruction. And so will you awaken our hearts this morning, Lord, to the reality of where we might spend eternity. And if we are headed down that path, Lord, will you awaken our soul this morning unto salvation, that we would believe upon Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So we ask you to come now, speak into our lives, Lord, bring understanding through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Why me? Why now? What is going on here, God? Like, don't you know who I am? I'm a redeemed child of God. How could you allow this difficulty in my life? Have you ever asked God these kinds of questions? Questions that are ultimately attacking his character? Attacking who God is and what he stands for. I have to be honest that I myself have asked these sorts of questions. Yes, in desperation at times and just, but also in times of simple inconvenience. Let me illustrate. My wife and I lived in Florida and we, uh, for about 10 years, and there was one particular week that I was very busy with my job and all of these kinds of things, and there was lots of weather that was happening, the grass was growing, and, and, and all of these sorts of things, and, and I don't know if you've ever been in, in Florida when it rains, but dude, it rains. Like, it, it comes down. So I, I knew that there was some weather coming in later in the week. It had been raining. My grass is really tall, and I don't have a lot of time. And so I have a window that I know that I have to get my lawn mowed. And so, you know, if you're a guy and you care about your lawn, this is a big deal. So, like, you, you, you drive up to your house and you see the, the grass growing and you're, you're stressing out. That's me. That's how I am. So I have to get this done because if I don't, there's no possible time for me to do it later. So I start to mow my lawn and, and I can feel sprinkling happening and I'm thinking, oh, man, it's going to rain. And I begin to pray, God, will you please just hold off the rain? 
just until I get my half acre mode. Like, <laughs> it's not big. Can you just hold it off just a little bit for me uh, so that I can get my lawn mode and I can, I can decompress a little bit because you know how I am. You created me. And I, as I'm praying and I'm mowing, all of a sudden, the heavens opened up and a torrential fury of the wrath of rain came down upon me. And before I could even get close to my garage, I was just completely and totally sopped. Trying to get my mower in the garage and it's pouring down rain and I've been praying. Lord, will you hold the rain off? So when I got in my garage, I had a conversation with God. And I said, how could you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? I mean, don't you understand how busy I am in all of these things? It was ridiculous, the conversation I had with God, and I'm not making this up. I'm not even over-dramatizing this. If you would have seen it, you'd have said, dude, you do not belong in the pulpit. For real. So after God sent me to my room, and I realized the ridiculousness of what I had done, I repented. I said, God, will you forgive me? And the Lord shared something with me. He said, Tim, I know that was inconvenient for you, but don't you see what I'm doing here? I'm revealing your heart. You have serious, serious issues as it relates to me not doing what you want me to do in the moment. That was a growing experience for me. It was one of those moments that you think like, Lord, use a stupid thing like this to talk to a stupid person like me. How incredible. How much do you love me that you would spend the time to show me this lesson, the things that are going on in my life? Why me, Lord? Why now? Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have one of those stories of your own. Perhaps it wasn't about inconvenience, but maybe it was in a moment where you were in desperate need of God to do a miracle or, or to show up in a big way and, 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 it's, and it's an incredibly sad moment for you and you're crying out to God and you're saying, Lord, will you deliver me from this situation? And you, fell, and you feel like that prayer wasn't heard because what you wanted didn't happen. And so maybe this morning you're mad at God and you're saying, God, I can't believe that you allowed this to happen in my life. Let me tell you something. There's a reason for that. And it's the very reason that he's revealing to your heart even right now. It's God is trying to help us understand where we are with him. Do we really trust him? And he uses suffering to do that. He uses difficulty to do that. He uses affliction in our life to reveal to us what's really going on inside. Listen, there are probably other ways that he could do it, but this is the way he's chosen. But aren't you thankful that he's showing you? Because our prayer is, Lord, make me more like Jesus. And that takes some affliction, some difficulty, some chastisement for the Lord to really show you. If everything in your life just continued to stay good and well and you continue to coast through life with no problems, you would never really understand the depth of the sin in your heart. You would never really understand the distance that is created between you and God because of circumstance. And so God, is, God wants to reveal those things to us so that we can press in closer. So listen, if you're here this morning and you have, you're in that place where you're upset with God because he hasn't done anything, you want to listen closely to this message because the Lord wants us to understand suffering. He wants us to understand why it is that he allows things in his life. Not only that, but ultimately what his master plan is in the end. He wants you to understand these things. The church in Thessalonica was a suffering church. But they had a good understanding of suffering already. They understood that God was using it. And Paul had kind of already laid a foundation that, listen, anybody who wants to live for the Lord is going to suffer. And, and yet this church was, had such an understanding of suffering that they were doing it so well 
that in verses 3 and 4, Paul says this. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul is thanking God for the faith and love of, and the steadfast hope that these believers were exhibiting as they were suffering well through the persecutions and afflictions that they were enduring. There was no shortage of trial in these people's lives. From day one, suffering began for these people. I, I recall your memory back to Acts chapter 17 where here is the planting of this church. Listen to the things that are going on there. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apoll Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where, they, where there was a, a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days Sabbath, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did, great, as did a, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not only a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. From day one, this church was experiencing persecution, affliction. Why? Because contrary to popular belief, not everybody loves the message of redemption through the cross of Calvary and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is fully to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible goes on to say that it is a stumbling block to the Jew and fully to the Greek. It produces hostility like no other message can, folks. It is beyond any political conversation that you can have. In fact, do you know according to Open Doors Ministries, 11 11 Christians are killed every day for their decision to follow Jesus. It's that hostile, the cross of Jesus Christ, that he died to pay for your sin and rose again from the dead to pave the way to heaven for you. That is the message that people are so hostile against that they will kill for. So you might think, why God? What are you doing? But Jesus said that it would cost to follow him. He said that to us. Remember, I read this last week, John chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would have, not, would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Jesus said you can count on suffering when you follow me. Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. We, I just saw this last week. We have somebody in our fellowship took our live stream and they forwarded it on, and they shared it on their Facebook feed. They didn't say anything that anybody 
need some Jesus today. That's what the message said, and it had our feed in the Facebook little post. And one of their friends commented, these sorts of things will get you unfriended. And the comment came back, for forwarding this? Boom, unfriended. So you understand that the name of Jesus, people are hostile to. You understand that? And so to follow Jesus means that you're going to encounter some hostility. If you're not encountering some hostility, then you're probably not speaking the name of Jesus, which ultimately means that we're not living the life that we're called to live. Don't misunderstand what I just said. I didn't say go seek out affliction and persecution. That's not what I said. What I said is it will come to you as you, as you continue to live your life for the name of Jesus. It will find you. You do not have to find it. And by the way, it doesn't make you more holy the more persecuted you are. Some people have this in their mind that they have to be dealing with suffering or persecution in order to be righteous. That's not how you're made righteous. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and the, 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 the evidence of your salvation is the fact that you're going out, you're, you're doing things in Jesus' name. That is, but that's not how you're saved. Nor does that declare your level of spiritual maturity. All I'm telling you is Jesus said himself, it's going to cost you something. That's why he said you've got to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost you something. In fact, the early church understood this so well that it was the theologian Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They understood that as the church began to spread that it was going to cost people their lives, and yet it was not a diminishing return. In fact, as people would go out and give their lives up, the church would go and grow exponentially. And so came this saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If you've ever read, uh, you know, that Fox's book of martyrs, you read about the, the early apostles and who died, who gave up their lives for their faith and how that have impacted the culture. And then you read about second century, third century, uh, you know, people who've given up their lives for Christ and how it impacted their culture. It's amazing the testimonies of people who gave their life up for Christ and yet their own, the, their very persecutors came to Christ as a result. Was it worth it? Is it worth it that your life be traded for someone else's because you're going to heaven? Maybe they're not. And in fact, isn't that really what Jesus did for you? Did he not trade his life for yours? Should we not do the same? The more those who love Jesus suffer and die for their faith, the more the church grows. So this becomes a huge motivator to want to suffer persecution and affliction. Well, just like the church in Thessalonica was doing, they didn't understand it all, but they did understand suffering was part of it. So Paul brings this text before us this morning to help us understand suffering better. There are three specific things that Paul wants us to know here, first, that their suffering had great purpose, that those in Thessalonica that were suffering, that it was not for nothing, that they, it had great purpose. Look at verse 5. It says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is one of those texts that you come across in the Bible and you're like, wait, what? I did that all week. I'm like, wait, what? What does this mean? <laughs> I don't understand this. What, is, what does this mean? This seems, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound like, like the way that you become worthy of the kingdom of God is to suffer? It's not what it's saying. Nor is it saying that, like, contrary to some of these theologians' uh, beliefs that, you know, that Paul is writing that in some way, shape, or form that that the righteous judgment of God is being poured out upon believers 
through suffering to, for payment of some kind of retribution for some sins in their life. Not true. How do we know? Because the blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin, period. It wipes it away. It's just as if you had not sinned. You were justified, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, you are not going to pay for your sins. Jesus paid for them. And the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all your sin, past, present, and future. You will never pay for a single thing that you've done because Jesus paid it all on the cross. Amen? I hope that encourages you this morning because, listen, sometimes we wonder about that, I think. Sometimes we wonder if, what's going to happen when I stand before the Lord and these decisions that I've made and these, th these things that I've done. And I promise you, you will see the Son of God walk out and He will say, it is finished, paid for. And, and, and the, the, the Father will see you as He sees His Son. How grateful we ought to be for the blood of Jesus Christ, for the cross of Calvary, that pay, the payment, of, the atonement of our sin. This is in no way, shape, or form saying that this is God judging the sin in the lives of believers because the blood of Christ is sufficient. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to him, speaking of Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is finished, folks. If you're in Christ today, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're in sin today, how does, what, how does that work and what does that mean for me? Eternally, the debt has been satisfied. You're paid for. On this level today, as it relates to, you know, your life and your sanctification, essentially what happens when we sin is we break fellowship with God. We break, break our fellowship with God. And so what do we need to be restored into fellowship with God is repentance. We need to come back to that place of bowing our knee before the Lord and saying, God, will you forgive me for my sin? Listen, we don't, we don't talk about repentance enough in the church, I don't think. That, that, that word has somehow made its way out the door, and all we talk about is God's love, and we talk about the sacrifice of Christ, but we do not talk enough about the reality of being made right with God, not, not just eternally, but on the horizontal as well, on a regular basis through repentance. What is repentance? It's not simply confessing your sin to God, but it's turning away from your sin and confessing it to God. It's to, to say, Lord, I've changed my mind as it relates to the things that I've done, and I'm turning my heart back over to you. That's how you're saved, by the way through the blood of Christ, but it's through repentance. It's, it's the recognition that I'm a sinner and I need to turn away from my sin and I'm turning to you. And then the blood of Christ is what ultimately saves you. But it's the turning away. God needs to see that in your heart. If you want to restore your fellowship with God, it's the same way. You have to turn your heart away from sin and turn your heart to the Lord. Let's consider these words very carefully so we understand what Paul is saying here. Paul says, this is evidence. What is evidence? What is this? This is pointing us back to what he just said in verses 3 and 4. When he, when he, when he said that, that, that the Thessalonica people are, are enduring persecutions and sufferings faithfully. This is evidence. That's what he's saying. The fact that they are enduring their suffering, that, that they're enduring the persecution, and, and uh, they're doing it well, that this is evidence. Literally, this is proof of what? The righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God, meaning the right and just decision that God has made to allow suffering into the lives of his children. This, this word... This word judgment here is speaking of God's righteous decision to allow such things. 
He's not talking about God's judgment in terms of his wrath coming down upon people. He's talking about his judgment in terms of what he, why he allows these things to happen in our lives. That judgment, the decision that he's made. That's what he's speaking of here. Saying this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. God is allowing suffering, persecution, these things to sanctify his people, to build them up in character through the difficulties they experience. God uses everything. He uses everything for his own ends. I love that. Proverbs 16, 4. God uses everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. God is in control, 100%. And he's using everything. And he's at work in everything. That's why every single experience that we have has purpose. It's not coincidence when you experience something. Every interaction that you have with every human being has purpose, negative or positive. God is, in, God is that much in control. Every single detail of your life, he's either allowing or he's orchestrating for your good and for his glory. Aren't you glad that you have a God that is in control? Aren't you glad that you have a God that loves you that much, that is being a father to you, that is by your side helping you through things? Some of us didn't have great parents that showed us, really didn't show us anything about life. And so as we got older, we're trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing because I didn't have a good parental pathway to understand adulthood. And yet we have a good, good father who shows us what it's supposed to be like, what our life is supposed to be like as he, he mentors us. He ministers to us. He shows us the path that we're called to walk on. But when God, God's righteous judgment brings into question a lot of things in this world, right? I was just watching this last week as I was laid up in bed watching Netflix. I should have been studying, I know. But I was watching the, the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Anybody know who he is? He was an eight-year-old boy who was abused by his mother and her boyfriend, and he was, he, was, he was murdered by them, but not before he suffered greatly. He suffered greatly. I mean, the, the, the kinds of things that they did to this kid brought legitimate rage in my heart. I'm thinking... Why in the world does this kind of stuff happen? Why in the world to an innocent little boy who cannot protect himself? And there are many, many people in the world that would take that, that kind of idea and then say, God, you're to blame. Why would you allow these kinds of things to happen? And yet, through this process, what, what they found out was that the L.A. Child Protective Services Program is failing miserably. So perhaps it took this one boy's life for God to shine the light on something that's happening across the board into many, 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 many homes. How many other kids are facing these kinds of things it's not, God, why are you allowing this to happen? It's like, God, I know that you're doing something. And I might not understand it, but I trust your character. And I know who you are. And I know what you're about. And I know you're doing something bigger than I can comprehend. And so I trust you. How many conversations have you had with people like that? Why would a loving God allow disease? Why would a loving God, if he's so in control, why would he allow all these kinds of things? Because he's up to something. Because he's up to something. And that's why his word tells us that our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. We don't understand what God is doing so often. But what I can tell you is that in every circumstance, in every situation, he is, trying, he is working out everything for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And that he's doing something bigger than we understand. God is good. And his decisions are just. 
And we will never have a legitimate reason to reject him because of the evil that you or I experience in this life. Paul says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, relating to God's righteous judgment, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's the truth. God will use our suffering as a platform to prepare us for heaven. That's why Paul goes on to say that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. He's telling us in this passage that that as we suffer, that God is making a declaration to the world that you belong to him and that you're worthy of heaven, that you are worthy of the kingdom of heaven. You, you might think like, well, I'm not worthy. You're, you really aren't worthy. I'm not worthy either. But, but through Christ, we are worthy. And so if we are worthy through Christ, then we are worthy to suffer as Christ suffered. We're worthy to suffer the same things that Jesus himself suffered. In fact, if you look all the way back to the very um, disciples of Jesus, we have an example of this, this mentality. Peter and John, remember when they were arrested by the Sanhedrin? Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they were beaten and all of these kinds of things, and they, they, they said, you better not speak in the name of Jesus any longer. And they said, man, you know what? We're going to continue to speak in the name of Jesus because we don't answer to you. We answer to God. That's paraphrased, obviously, but... You can read that passage there in Acts chapter 4, the end there. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Here's what's incredibly interesting about suffering and persecution is that as Christians experience suffering and persecution, particularly in the early church, when the whole world was against them. We're talking about 12 dudes that left their fathers and their mothers and they followed Jesus and that 12 became 72 and that 72 became maybe 120 when Jesus died. Something like that. We don't hear them pray, God, will you take this persecution away. Will you take this suffering away? You know what we do pray? God, embolden us that we would stand firm in the faith. Listen to what they prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 29 through 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaking and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why did they pray that? I mean, the Bible says we can ask for anything. If it's in his will, then we'll get it. You have not because you ask not and you have not because you ask amiss. You ask outside of the will of God. What is the will of God in this situation? They're not saying, will you please take me out of this situation? Like, I don't know, I pray. God, will you take away my back pain? Poor little me. Will you take me out of this situation, Lord, because my back hurts? You know, no. Lord, what are you doing through this situation? What do you want to do through this situation? And I don't mean to minimize your pain because... You know, some of you have some legitimate anguish and issues and all of that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is this, though. Maybe the prayer isn't, Lord, take me out of the situation. Maybe the prayer is, Lord, Lord, embolden me in this situation. Strengthen me in this situation, Lord. I want to get through this however you want me to get through it, God. And so what it is, is, is and ultimately, it's a, a total dependence on him. And you're saying, Lord, I don't know what you want to do, but I'm yielding myself up to you. Your will be done. That's what Jesus prayed. Jesus said, hey, if there's any other way, Lord, then let it be, but your will be done. Not necessarily my will, God, because my will isn't always best. Listen, how many of you guys would say if you got everything that you prayed for, you'd be in a worse position than you are today? Probably all of us, because we pray, we pray selfishly. We pray for 
comfort, ease, and pleasure. We just say, Lord, just, will you just drop a bag of money on my, on my doorstep, Lord? We just deposit a million bucks in my savings account so I don't have to worry about anything. Lord, listen. It's through all of these things. God, will you take away this disease? He does, by the way. At, at times, he does all of those things. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for that. What I'm saying is, is, listen, when you're praying for that and the Lord's not answering, then maybe you need to change your prayer and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, God, I'm okay with it. What I hear the early church say is, Lord, help us to be strong for you. Not, not take me out of this situation. I'm sure we could all give testimony after testimony after testimony today of how God used really difficult situations in our life to shape us and make us more like Jesus. We could all talk about different things that God has allowed in our life and how that's made us press into God more. Or perhaps it's revealed something that we need to deal with in our life. Suffering has great purpose. God knows what he's doing. And he's at work through these things. And so we just cling to the Lord. And we just ask him, Lord, your will be done. Strengthen me. Help me. Get me through these things, Lord, in a way that would honor you. Suffering has great purpose. Secondly, suffering is only temporary, but not for everybody. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul reminds the believers in Thessalonica here that the, uh, of the end game of suffering for the afflicted, but also for the afflictors. He's saying, hey, the end game for you is relief. One day you will hear enter into your rest and you will never suffer again. There is relief coming. But for some people, there is no relief. This is the most relief that they will ever experience in all of eternity. And so Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to put in perspective our sufferings today as it relates to those who are inflicting suffering upon the church of Jesus Christ. This section of Scripture is one of the heaviest sections of Scripture relating to eternal punishment for the unbeliever, in particular to those who have persecuted the church. Notice what Paul says here. He says, God is just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God will not let their or your suffering go unpunished. Contrary to popular belief, he is just in repaying with affliction those who afflict his kids. This is the righteousness of God at work. He cannot let evil slide. He will justly judge the deeds of man who are outside of Christ and repay all evil accordingly. That means those who persecute his church will be judged and sentenced accordingly. He will not let anything slide. His righteousness will not allow him to do so. But what we must understand is not that he judges, but how he judges, and that is justly. That word literally means rightly, honorably. God will be just in every decision that he's made. That means that he won't judge people too much, but he also won't judge people too little. He is just in every judgment that he makes.
At the same time, God will provide, listen, relief to his kids. As the word says, this too shall pass, right? Listen, you're, you're, Paul calls it your momentary afflictions are not to be compared with the eternal glory waiting for you. Your momentary afflictions. Sometimes we need to keep things in perspective and remember that this, whatever it is that you're going through, is, is temporary. It's temporary. God will see you through it one way or another. You just trust the Lord. You continue to press into God. It's temporary, but not for everybody. Listen, your day of rest is coming. Just be steadfast. and The Lord will do his purifying work through whatever it is that you're going through in your life. When will this happen? When will we experience this relief? Remember the saints underneath the, the throne of God in the book of Revelation? They're saying, how long, O Lord, before you come and justly judge those who have martyred us, who have killed us, who have murdered us. How long, O Lord? And here we get a glimpse of the patience of God, of the patience of God for those who are running so far away from him, and yet he's so patient. He's so patient with them, trying to reach them, because God doesn't want anyone to be eternally separated from him. God wills that no man perish, but all come to repentance his desire. I think God has a bad rap as it relates to salvation, man. He's trying to save people, but he won't force people to be saved. And so really, ultimately, going to hell becomes a choice. I choose that path if I so willingly do so. I can do it. I can choose that path if I want to. But that's not God's will for you. He, he loves you. He wants to be, you to be reconciled with him. Well, and, and that's why he sent his son. So when will we experience this relief? It says at the apocalypsis of Jesus, the revealing. That word revealing there, that's the same word uh, used in Revelation. It's, it's revelation. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. One day Jesus will reveal himself to all the world. He will crack open the sky. He will reveal himself. Now, I mean, if we're being honest, some of us really question that. They're like, I don't know if I believe that. People have been saying that a long time, and, you know, they have. They've been saying it a long time. But the reality is that one day this is going to happen. You know, this is God's patience at work as he waits. And I'm thankful that he didn't do it prior to 1996 before I got saved. And maybe... You got saved last year, last week, whatever it is. So you're thankful this morning. God, thank you that you saved my soul before you came back. And yet, there are many, many other people who are in the same position you were once. It's not a question of if Jesus is coming. The Bible says he is. So it's a question of do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe what the word says? Jesus is coming back. And here's our responsibility to be ready. That's what he said. You just be ready. You need to be ready for that moment. You, 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 all you have to do is be ready. You don't need to know when. You just need to be ready. Right? And so we're ready at all times. We're waiting for, for the bridegroom to come back and, and, and take his church. We're ready for it. Hopefully. Because one day he will reveal himself. And in that moment is when all this world will fade away. And you will be reconciled to, the, to, to Jesus forever and ever, and you will have, uh, you know, that, that relief, that rest that you long for. But in the meantime, we wait, and we hope in the Lord, and we rest in, in his provisions. We rest in his strength. Look at how he's going to come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There will this will be the single most frightening moment in the history of the world, folks, when Jesus comes in all his glory to judge the world. He's not coming with a peace treaty. He's coming with a sword, the Bible says. 
His second coming, he is coming with a sword to inflict vengeance upon those who don't know God and those who refuse to obey the gospel. And listen, a Christ-rejecting world will cower at the coming of Christ. Cower at the presence of the Lord. We see over and over and over again people falling dead before angels. It's nothing in comparison to when Jesus comes. Nothing in comparison to his presence. The awesome part about it is I believe this church is going to be with him in these moments. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16, then I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Check this out, verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I believe that's you and me. I believe that's a reference to the church. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, you don't want to be on the receiving end of the second coming of Christ. You don't want to be on the, on the receiving end of this. God doesn't want you to be on the receiving end of this. He's bringing vengeance, punishment, and retribution for all those who have rejected him and have hurt his kids. So how do we avoid it? Paul says, by believing, by believing the testimony about Jesus, about his death, and about his resurrection. It's believing in Jesus. That's how you avoid all of this. I've seen the Lord in this way. But for those who will reject the gospel, who will reject the fact that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who will reject the gospel are, will, will be on the receiving end of this. And it says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I, I don't know how you get around the scriptures like this that speak about an eternal damnation, a place called hell. I don't know how you get around that. I don't know how you can erase that out of the Bible. I mean, Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody spoke about hell, and yet there are even people in, in many, many churches in our culture today that would say, I'm a believer, but I don't believe in hell. Then you don't believe the Bible. You, you, you don't believe the Bible because the Bible speaks about this. I mean, what is, he, what is he referencing here when he's talking about they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might? What, what, is, what is the punishment they will suffer? Is it, is it just to be non-existent? That's what Jehovah Witnesses will teach you. That you're just Nothing. You, you just go into soul sleep and you don't exist? Is that what it sounds like? That's not what it sounds like to me. I also don't think that's what Jesus was saying when he was speaking about the, the reality of hell. Listen, he said that it is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How do you weep and gnash your teeth if you don't exist? God doesn't say these things to scare us. God says these things to warn us. There's a difference. Oftentimes, man operates in a fear mode of trying to scare you into doing something. God isn't trying to scare you into doing anything. God is trying to warn you that the decision is, is up to you, that he sent his son he sent his son for you so that you could be reconciled to him so that you don't have to be, you don't have to experience the suffering and the punishment of eternal destruction away from his presence because God wants to be with you. 
He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to spend all of eternity with you. That's why he did what he did. And yet so many will say, I, I don't care. I don't believe in that. And so we deceive ourselves into thinking something doesn't exist so we don't have to think about it. And that's a sad place to be. I don't know about you, but I would rather know the truth because the truth would set you free. I don't refuse to, to think about the truth because then I can't do anything about the truth. And so oftentimes we block the truth out because we don't want to hear it because we want to remain where we are. And that's rejection. That's willful. Right? It's willful to have information and do nothing with it. That is willful. I decided what I'm going to do with that. You go to the dentist, he tells you you have a cavity, and he says, you need to have this cavity fixed or, you know, you're going to lose your tooth. The decision is yours. It's willful. You can do what you want. You can fix it or you can leave it. Or you can act like it's not happening. You can say, I don't believe your little x-ray machine. I don't believe that you have all the right information. I don't believe in cavities. Does that take away the reality of the fact that you have a cavity, and if you don't do something with it, it's gonna, you're going to lose your tooth? Stupid illustration, I know. But the point is there. That is the reality, folks. Paul's trying to encourage these, the, these people. He's trying to encourage the church, number one, that their relief is coming, but at the same token, he's trying to, he's trying to tell the church, listen, there is an eternal damnation coming for those who are outside of Christ. There is a place called hell, and it is real. And he's not saying this because they're going to feel the weight of it, but what he's telling them is that's the reality of the, the afflictors of, of the, the, the persecution and the affliction that they're experiencing in, in their lives that, listen, it's only temporary for, those, for the afflicted. But it's permanent. This, this will be the best it gets for those who are outside of Christ. And so maybe there's some sort of compassion through the Holy Spirit that he's saying, pleading with the church, would you, would you have compassion on your persecutors, on those who are causing you to suffer? Would you, would you, ha, ha, would you cause them to, you know, would, would you love them even though they're persecuting you? Would you pray for them? Because they're in is not good. Eternal damnation. He goes on at the end here, and he, and he talks to us about the fact that suffering has great purpose, that it's temporary, but not for everybody, and that ultimately it's meant to bring glory to Jesus. Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God will make you worthy of the calling of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, while we, were, while we wait for the return of Christ and the relief of persecution and affliction, we will commit to pray for you. That's what he's telling this church. We're just going to continue to pray for you, that God's going to strengthen you, that God is going to make you worthy of his calling through your suffering, and that he's going to use you for good, and to, that he's going to use your situation to increase your faith by his power and might. Listen, so that, here's the key, key part of that verse, so that our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. His prayer is this, Lord, use whatever you have to to bring glory to the name of Jesus. That's his prayer. It's about Jesus. It's about glorifying Jesus. It's about Jesus. Think about that next time you're inconvenienced when you're trying to mow your lawn in the rain. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is trying to do something. God is trying to get glory. But if we don't do it right, if we don't suffer well, then Christ isn't glorified. 
Christ isn't glorified. You know what Jesus' commitment to the Father was? His glory. It's all to your glory. Father, I'm doing this for your glory. You be glorified. And he laid his life down to the glory of God. And Paul is saying that whatever we are dealing with in our lives, may it be used to bring glory to God. May it be used to bring glory to God. Jesus, in his darkest moment of suffering, when he was on the cross, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It was while he was suffering that he proclaimed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To his persecutors, to those who were inflicting suffering upon his life. But he ultimately understood that it was to the glory of the Father. And so he willingly gave his life up. He suffered well for us. And so we ought to then suffer well for him. Listen, I know in America, this isn't a popular message. I know in America, you could go to 150 different churches in Columbia alone, and you might hear about hell a few times. You know, we don't preach about hell every week because we go verse by verse through the Bible, but when it's in the Bible, we speak about it. And so that's the reality. This isn't a popular message, and, and there, there's a lot of controversy. A lot of people in the church don't believe in hell. They don't believe in hell, but, but here's what I would say to you. If you want to erase hell, you better erase everything else out of the Bible. You cannot pick and choose what you want to believe. And you can, you know, I, I'm happy to have a conversation with you if you're struggling with that and you're, you don't understand that. I'm happy to sit down with you and walk through the scriptures with you because it doesn't matter what I think and it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God says and that's pure and simply the truth. Here's what I want to leave you with. God loves you. He sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the ultimate price for you. Through his sacrifice, belief upon him, turning away from your sin and believing upon Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and upon the resurrection of Christ, you can be saved. And that is the promise that God gives you. Anybody that comes to him through his son, he will by no means cast out. He wants to receive you in this morning. And if you don't know the Lord, today is the day. Listen, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. There are so many people, as I said last week, that get into a car or they go to sleep at night and they don't wake up. They don't come home. I don't care how old you are. The reality is right now you have this moment and the Lord is asking you an eternal question. If you die today, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Do you know that you have eternity? Have you turned away from your sin? Have you turned towards the Lord this morning? Are you saved? Listen, if, if you aren't, there's going to be some guys down here that want to pray with you, that want to talk with you. We're not going to just rush you through a prayer and send you on your way. If, if you, if you want to know the Lord, you, you come down and talk to one of these guys down here and they'll pray a prayer with you because we want to connect with you. We feel like there needs to be a, a, a process that, that you can go through to help you understand the gospel. And so the worship team is going to come up and we're just going to close with a song. If that's you, you come down and you, you, you receive prayer. You ask, say, hey man, I just... I feel like I need, to, I need to receive the Lord this morning. And if, if you're not right with God today and you're a believer, listen, make it right today. Confess your sin. Turn away from your sin. Repent. Get right with the Lord. He loves you so much. And he put this text in your path today for this reason, because he loves you. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you love us so much, Lord. 
that you would write 66 love letters to us. Lord, that you would not hold back the truth from us. God, but you would confront lies in our own hearts, Lord. You would confront thoughts that are deceptive, Lord. And you would bring truth to us. You are an amazing God, and we love you this morning, Lord. We pray, Father, for those that don't know you here, maybe, Lord, listening to this message later, that, that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself. You know, your word tells us, John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless he's drawn. And if someone's filling that drawing this morning, Lord, will you help them to come to get out of their seat, to say, man, this is more important than my pride and what other people will think of me. I need you, Jesus. I want to be forgiven today. Lord, for those of us that do know you, sort of a sobering text. For the reality of those who don't know you. And maybe our hearts are broken, Lord, because we think of those who we know. The lost. Our loved ones. Maybe it's our kids. Our spouse. Our mom, our dad. Our relatives, our friends, Lord. We ask you to just reveal the gospel to them today, Lord. We want to lift up our unsaved family members, friends, those we love. God, if you can't use us, will you use somebody to reveal the gospel to them? Will you open their heart? It's only a work you can do, Lord. We trust you with it. We know that you're already at work but we ask. Lord, for those of us who are suffering in this place today, God, we just ask for a strength beyond human ability. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give us what we need. If it's healing, Lord, then heal us. If it's boldness, then embolden us. If it's faith, then build it in us, Lord. Have your way. We pray to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he would be glorified in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.